I had an opportunity, I think maybe about two years ago, to go to a, it was like a private dining experience with um, one of the top Israeli chefs here in the United States. And it was so amazing to listen to him talk about how the Jewish culture connected with food and how very exact and the same it was for um, the African-American culture, for Asian cultures. This culture of food, everyone has their different way of making it, but there's still this one intersect in it. And so it just was so amazing that it was the same exact connection. Today we welcome to the third place, Chef Jamie Hunt. Chef Jamie has provided her culinary expertise for past presidents, public officials, entertainers, and athletes. Her clientele includes some of New York's most elite residents, Wall Street executives, and A-list celebrities such as Sean Puffy Combs and Alicia Keys. Currently, Chef Jamie is building her foundation, Teach Her, which focuses on healthy eating and mentoring for young and teenage girls. Chef Jamie's love for life, family, and nutritious food is what led her to accomplishing her dream of making a difference through food. Welcome Chef Jamie to the third place. We welcome you to explore the third place with us. It is an invitation to the gray space, a space where deeper connections are fostered through challenging, challenging empowering, and, and engaging dialogue. You will walk away with a deeper understanding of self, equipped to engage with others in life's complex conversations. Thank you for listening. We invite you in to the third place. Hi, Jamie. Welcome to the third place. Hi, Mary. Hi, David. Thank you for having me. So can we just start with you telling us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So my name is Chef Jamie Hunt. I am originally from San Francisco, California. I'm the youngest of four girls. Um, both of my parents were amazing cooks. Um, my mom and my dad, I don't think that we ever had a meal that kept us at the table till 11 trying to finish it. Um, both of my parents are deceased. Um, I moved to New York in 2005, actually April Fool's Day. Of 2005 um, to attend the Culinary Institute of America. Um, I left my family and um, a nice cushy job back home in California and packed up all my stuff like the Beverly Hillbillies and had all my stuff in tow um, and attended the Culinary Institute of America and it changed my life. Um, and so like most people would say the rest is history and we are sitting here today. What was like your favorite meal that your parents would make? So that's a loaded question. Perfect. That's perfect. <laughs> that's the third place. Everything's. <laughs> uh, depending on who I'm sitting with or which one of my siblings I'm sitting with. Um, yeah, I get that. I, I would have to say my birthday was the best day because I got an option. So my dad would always say, you know, do you want me to make you red snapper and fries and oysters? Or my mom would ask me, did I want to have collard greens and rice and gravy and hot water cornbread and fried chicken? 
And then my dad always sweetened the deal because he would make this carrot cake that did not require cream cheese frosting. Like that's how good it was. Um, so, so it was always tough. It was always tough. And I think they like used to battle each other to see like who <laughs> was going to get chosen every year. But I would have to say those are my two probably most favorite meals uh, from my childhood. I mean, all the way through college. Like I, I think I purposely went to school across the bridge so I could still be close to my parents and still take advantage of like the baby status and still get like square meals <laughs> on the weekend. I love that they were they were fighting over cooking and that um, that it wasn't just like one quick answer. But clearly, that is definitely one of the reasons why or a contributing factor to you now being a chef. Correct? Yes. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like. It's almost like if you had parents that were really good cooks, that could inspire you. Or if they were really bad cooks, it could inspire mm-hmm. you. So <laughs> <Yeah>. either way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think a lot of people, when they think of a chef, they probably assume that you work in restaurants. But you you know, pointed out that you work in the private sector. Can you give our listeners like a little bit more context of what that means to work in the yes. private sector as a chef, too? Yes. First, let me say... There's absolutely nothing wrong with working in a restaurant. It just wasn't for me. And I was introduced to the private sector and cooking privately. When you're in a restaurant, you're in a space where there are other chefs and really no one sees you. So you kind of get to compartmentalize like your personality, your your vibe, your everything. Um, when you're in a private space, all of that is on display. And so your energy naturally feeds off into that family. And so most of my clients I've ever had have always, you know, said like during the interview process that, you know, I can feel like a really great energy from you. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's nice. Like, and so I don't think I ever really understood it until like I got really deep into cooking privately that you are essentially a part of their family their children connect with you because everyone hangs out in the kitchen like I tell my daughters this now eating is just one portion of the dining experience that when you guys get out of the car from coming home from school and you can smell like what I'm cooking before you get in the house like you're already excited And so when you get to see other kids and you can create that in like somebody else's home um, and then the parents are coming in and then all of a sudden everyone's in the kitchen and it's almost just a replica of what you've experienced growing up. Um, You're creating this for another family. Um, And so I just believe that each client I've ever had, there was like a very specific, pure reason why I was there and it all was center focused on food so I had a client who um whose son needed help with math and his younger brother was wanting to learn how to tie his shoes and so they would come and sneak into the kitchen in the afternoon and like try to like pick food that I already had laid out on the on the island and it wasn't the food they were really coming to get the youngest would like always put his foot up on the stool. And I was like, what are you doing? (laughs) And so he was like, chef, can you help me? I'm trying to learn how to tie my shoes. 
And so every day he would come in and, you know, so I would, you know, teach him like, okay, here's the rabbit ear, here's the other rabbit ear. And, you know, we're going through all this. And during all this, you know, I'm like sauteing mushrooms because I know like he is like not the biggest vegetable eater. And I'm like, okay, if I teach you this, you got to try this. And so we would have like these little quiet barters between us. Um, And then his brother needed help with math. He would come in there with his book and he would sit and eat. And I was like, sweetheart, why do you keep bringing that book in here? And so he, you know, finally was like, can you just help me a little bit? These are the relationships that happen over food that you know I hold near and dear to my heart because they are organic and they're very innocent. And just to have like these quiet moments with people like in the kitchen or to like be able to give people this space so that they can connect with their family. Everything about this just to me is so much of the third place. Like you're, you're being brought into a personal space of these families that you work with. And then, and through the food, you're, you're bridging these gaps. You, you've become comfortable. You've become someone that where a lot of trust has been established. You know, the, teaching a young kid, um, how to tie his shoes. That's a personal thing. Food is what bridges these gaps. And so. I just love it so much. Um, and you're able to, to be a part of, uh, so many people's lives and have kind of that relationship. Like you said, it, there's so much relationship that revolves around this food experience. When I look about food and like you said, like it's not just eating, it's the preparing, it's going to the market, it's, it, you know, picking out all the ingredients. There really are all of these steps that you can do with other people. It's also such a great way to unpack and celebrate so many different cultures because you're bringing in so many uh, experiences, the way that different cultures prepare even the same foods from one to another uh, changes drastically. And as I look at in the world today, you know, it's uh, sad that in the state that we live in, that we're not fully embracing the diversity of culture that we have. It's such a gift. And I think food is one of the safest ways to show that exists when we go to an italian restaurant what are we doing we're we're celebrating a group of people and we're honoring those differences how do you see food as being this way to connect us much more uh, with each other to realize what we have in common as we unpack celebrating cultures so i had an opportunity i think maybe about two years ago to go to a it was like a private dining experience with um one of the top Israeli chefs here in the United States. And it was so amazing to listen to him talk about how the Jewish culture connected with food and how very exact and the same it was for um, the African-American culture, for Asian cultures, this culture of food Everyone has their different way of making it, but there's still this one intersect in it. And so it just was so amazing that it was the same exact connection. And so, so like I love Asian food. We grew up eating dim sum from this one restaurant that is still standing today. And so I knew that when I started cooking, like I was going to have to learn how to like, 
make Peking duck, how to be able to fold dumplings, like how to be able like to make the best like stir fry and you know and you don't think about it like you go and you eat this and it's like oh my gosh this came out so fast it must not be that hard but there are these sciences to like perfecting fried rice and so for me like like when I get this opportunity to cook a culture um, a culture's food that I'm not familiar with I do like these little deep dives into like their culture because I don't want to just cook it like I want to understand it because something else is going to come out of that food, like from me knowing. So um, like having an opportunity to cook like different culture foods, like you get a little bit of me and you get like a lot of that culture's background. And I think it's a happy medium. Having that responsibility placed on me, like just brings out all the passions. And, um, and so you get it like when it comes to the table, like, you know, that it wasn't just like, oh, okay, great. I followed the recipe. Like, no, like I wanted to understand like why you salted this before you did this and then cooked it and then did this. And then it came out looking like this. And, um, and I want to be able to have those conversations with the people that are dining. Um, so if the question is asked, like, I am knowledgeable of what it is that I'm cooking and I want to feel proud of what it is that I've put on the table. So I think just culturally, I'm like a sponge when it comes to like trying different foods. I think that's one of the biggest things like between my husband and I, my husband traveled all over the country um, as a chef because um, he worked on this very fancy yacht so he got an opportunity to taste food from all over the world and as parents we have opened up our daughters like taste buds and their eyes to like okay there's more food other than mommy's food yeah so, I'm sure every parent listening is like tell us your secrets but <laughs> <laughs> I like I mean I'm sitting here and like not only is this the most challenging conversation to have being hungry, but because <laughs> I, I am salivating with everything that you're saying, but I feel like you totally are embodying curiosity. So like your, your desire to learn about each culture and each food and, and even different methods of preparation. I mean, it doesn't even have right. to be from culture to culture. It's just different methods of preparation is um, you know, you nerding out on that is a beautiful form of curiosity. <laughs> and then through that, in the exchange of the plate and the eating, that that ignites curiosity in that the, the person right. which is enjoying it. Because when I think of some of my best or most favorite meal experiences ever, a lot of time the conversation is about the food, right? Because there's mm -hmm. this this awe and shock and, and it does ignite that curiosity where you're like, how can something taste so good and force me to be so present right now? Right. You're going to want to ask questions. And I'm just really amazed at how your ability to be open, receptive and curious is exchanged in the act of you cooking and, and serving others. Like this could be a, like a heated conversation with the most chefs because you're in this space where you want instant gratification when your food goes down on to the table. And so like my husband and I have this joke, like I 
cook dinner the other night and he went and grabbed the salt and so I immediately was like what are you doing yeah and so I was like you don't have to do that and so he's like what are you talking about I said because you didn't even taste it yet and so yeah from one you, chef to another come on you know he want you know and then he's laughing at me he's like oh my gosh I don't like when you do that and I'm like no like my food does not require salt and so like you know we're laughing about it but for me, I love that response. So, like, it just makes me think about this Thai dish that I tried. It was, like, a very simplistic kind of chicken, but the chicken had to marinate, I think, for two days. And then the sauce was this pineapple, fresh pureed pineapple Then you had to cook it. Um, and then when I went to taste it, after I did all it said, it didn't taste good. And I was like, what? So, so for the next hour... I was thinking about, okay, I'm going to have to make another kind of sauce to go with the chicken because dinner time was approaching for my client. But I didn't throw the sauce away. And so by the time I came back in the, t- the kitchen, I was doing some other things. The sauce had completely cooled down. It, now it was cold. And I was like, oh, my gosh. So I just, like, inadvertently tasted it and stopped dead in my tracks. And I was like, it was almost like somebody had switched the sauce because it was so good. And I had to run back and look at the instructions because I don't remember in the instructions it's saying that that sauce was going to do something different at the point that it was completely cool. And so like I like immediately like I called my sister and I said, okay, I got to send you this recipe so you can try it. And I think like for the next week, she had that sauce with every single thing that she ate. <laughs> but like, it's those kind of moments that you know, like when you cook it and somebody else eats it, like somebody's going to lose their mind. Yeah. When, Especially um, if, if it causes that response in you yeah, who's oh, been exposed so to so good. much. Well, and that's a real life version of... You know, going into a deep dive of culture, learning how you do food prep. You know, so much of culture is generations and generations of these families that have perfected these recipes. And it is great, great, great grandma's recipe that uh, has been passed down. But you immediately in real life were embodying that as a tradition, too. Oh, my goodness. Here's this thing. It blew my mind. I was completely unexpected. I got to call my sister and tell her the story, you know, and so that it, now it's like you've embraced that as part of your family's uh, story, too. Right. No, it's pretty fun. One of my biggest challenges to date has been to perfect matzo ball soup. And so there's this joke about, you know, either you have floaters or you have sinkers. And so like so. Some people like floaters, which are the matzo balls, and some people like sinkers. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. And so I have followed this recipe for some time. And every year, I've had to order chicken fat. And I don't think I ever used it because I didn't know why I was ordering it. And so I think two years ago, I was looking at the recipe, and a part of the recipe calls for oil. And then it like hit me like a brick on my head, like, oh my gosh, it's the chicken fat that they're talking about in the recipe. And so now the matzo balls actually taste like they've got some body to it because the chicken fat is in there. And I remember when I made them that year and then I had floaters. 
but they were so good. Like I knew then that I could sell this soup. Like it was so good. And, um, and it's like one of those aha moments. I think every chef loves that moment when like something clicks and you know, this, this recipe easily probably is 30 years old to actually figure it out. It was like, you know, like this clue sitting there and like having almost now this stock of chicken fat in the freezer, not knowing what to do with it. And then like, Jamie, like, how did you not figure that out? And um, so now when I make it, there's this excitement because my daughters are like my biggest critics. And, you know, they're like, mommy, is it like, is it time? Are you making the matzo ball soup this year? And so, um, you know, I'm like, yes, I'm going to make it. And they can sit and demolish <laughs> like three bowls. And, and they're like, mom, like, this is the best soup that you ever. Yeah. And, you know, so, so I, it, it's exciting. Well, and again, like you took a recipe and you looked at it through your worldview and lens, but then you had a moment where you looked at the historical and cultural context of, wait a minute, this recipe was written and this is the fat that was available and you applied it. And so, you know, it's this like ultra nuance of culture that you then read the recipe through that completely changed it all. So that's just amazing. So we have celebrated Passover in my family since I was a young girl. We're not Jewish, um, but we just had Passover. So we're recording this just right after Passover. And I never uh, knew the difference between floaters and sinkers, but my mom <laughs> does. My mom has floaters, which is great. And yes, and I had a, I think I had four bowls, and it just is like one of the most soothing things. I actually really mm-hmm. have a similar uh, response to kitchery too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the hearing you just bring context of that, I'm definitely going to call my mom afterwards and ask her <laughs> what she's been doing. And and I'm also just really grateful to have had that uh, exposure to different traditions and different foods earlier on. And even though we are not Jewish, we were celebrating it because my mom right. loved the celebration and loved the food. And it like to me, like I would take matzo ball soup over chicken noodle soup any day of the week. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like your daughters are the same. But yes. Yes. Yeah. And so like, you know, this last year, we've all had to socially distance, right? And mm-hmm. um, we really couldn't gather in the way that we all were familiar with. And I think that that really brings us to what you started to do now, because I'm sure that that's really affected the work that you've done, especially in the private sector. And, and now I... I really want you to share, you know, what you've been doing and how you've been reinventing the capacity to gather and to continue to make third places even in this virtual space. So being a private chef and still having an opportunity to like cater. So that's what I did a lot of. And then being home and it just being like wiped out of my thoughts. And it was challenging because I think by the time the summer came last year, we usually have a very large summer party here at our home. And it's been like a tradition for the last, I think my daughter's nine, it's been a tradition for the last seven years. 
And so to have like all of our friends come from like Washington, D.C. and fly in from California and our, all my husband's friends come down from upstate and people are like looking forward to like commuting together and having game night and eating like really amazing food. And then for it to be taken away was like so challenging. And and I, I think one of the things that probably hurt me the most was not being able to figure out a way to still have that connection. And so like I, I always laugh because I think at one thirty in the morning, that's like probably when I do my best work. And I was up late one night and I asked my husband, like, what do you think if we created our summer party? virtually and he was like what are you talking about and i said well i wouldn't be able to cook for people but what if i like had people cook with us and then we still had like drinks and music and we still like figured out how to have game night because that's like a big thing like taboo is like a extreme sport with our friends but what if we could figure all that out? And so we started, you know, started working on it. And um, I started talking to some other people and they were like, Jamie, that's amazing. Um, so we created the Saturday Night Supper Club, which is for adults. Um, it happens monthly. Um, last month was our uh, was our launch and it was amazing. We had uh, guests on from every time zone across the map. And we had guests on from Portugal, it starts at 6.30 p.m. Um, so it was midnight in Portugal. And so we were like amazed that they hung out with us the whole time. We cooked a really simple dinner. And it, it was amazing because we had guests that were like, I didn't even know you could do that to a chicken. And even my sister said, Jamie, that was like one of the best chickens I've ever had in my life. And then we had a mixologist that uh, came in and he did a mocktail. It was called like the guava basil smash. And so he, what he he did the cocktail and then he elevated it. Like if you really wanted to like go fancy and then he took it all the way down to a mocktail if you didn't want to have alcohol in it. Um, and then we had games throughout um, the night and did like giveaways. And then we played... Um, we played a new game and our moderator like created like the board for it within Zoom. Um, and then we were done in 90 minutes and it was such fun. And like I felt almost, you know, minus all the work that I typically have to do for my summer party. <laughs> but like I was so excited and we had started a cooking class for kids earlier um, in the year um, called Kids in the Kitchen. And I felt accomplished like i i had this opportunity to connect with not just adults but with kids um giving kids an opportunity to cook and be in a space where they could learn about food and i try to create like literacy and math reading public speaking science all in cooking because all these things are happening when you're cooking and so this month will be our third series and we're making pizza. Um, and so the kids last month, like I try to give them like a little bit of um, the say-so and what they want to cook. And last month they did macaroni and cheese, which it you know, wasn't you know out of the box. They <laughs> did it from scratch. 
And I was impressed because these kids made a bechamel sauce and added cheese. I know some adults that cannot accomplish that. And so we had a seven years old to 11 years old on the call and they, they crushed it. So, I mean, it's so much fun. So much fun. I, I mean, I, not only as I've alluded to, I've been salivating this whole time, but I also have gotten the chills like multiple times because I feel like what you did. So you said something where it was that you didn't get to cook for people, but you got to cook with them. And I thought that that was so simple yet so powerful. And that, that reminds me of like, you know, you teach someone to fish, you don't get, catch them a fish, you teach them to fish and, and how, your reach in bringing it into their homes and empowering them to be able to also extend that to others just means that like uh, you made a and potentially even far more impact than you just cooking for people and right yeah yeah so i'm just i'm just in total awe so are these dinner parties open like is there a way that i can join because i want to be a part of the next one so if you go to my Instagram page um, and go into my bio and click the link, you will see um, my link tree, which will take you into the Eventbrite platform where you will be able to purchase your tickets for Kids in the Kitchen or for the Saturday Night Supper Club. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, every part of this interview with you has been a treat. <laughs> and thank you so much for this opportunity. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. You guys, see you later. Be well. Third Place Podcast is produced by Podcast Publishing House. If you like what you're hearing, follow us and subscribe at all of your favorite platforms, Apple, Spotify. Also check out the episodes on our website, thirdplacepodcast.com, for additional resources and transcriptions of our episodes. The Third Place is all about continuing the conversation. So make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Third Place Podcast. There you can check out our weekly co-host Happy Hours on IGTV. And if you like what you're hearing and want to continue to support our work, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Third Place Podcast.